You know, it's been said that the only thing more impressive than absolute power is when absolute power allows freedom of choice. It reminds me of a story I heard when Jane and I were visiting Amish country. We were reading about how they were committed to sort of nonviolence. They were passive. Uh, they, they, didn't, they were non-combatants when drafted and so forth. And yet sometimes they struggle with this position, you know, of nonviolence, particularly with the question of protecting themselves and their property and their homes and their families. One Amish gentleman resolved his convictions about nonviolence with his need to protect his family thus. When a, an intruder broke into his home, he raised the shotgun pointing it at the intruder, and said the following, Five seconds hereafter, I shall pull this trigger. I give thee the choice, therefore, whether thou shalt be in the path of this bullet. (laughs) You see, my friends, today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9. And if Romans chapter 9 is known for anything, it's known for being a a chapter where it appears, at least many people see in this chapter, it appears that God, by His own volition, apart from any human choices or decisions, makes arbitrary decisions, even impacting the salvation of souls. And we, we find here... We find here a number of verses here that, are, that seem very problematic. If we just scan through the chapter, we see a section here where it talks about Esau and Jacob and God choosing Esau, uh, Jacob over Esau. Even though Jacob was not born first, Jesus, or God said to his mother, the, younger shall, uh, the elder shall serve the younger. Before he was even before, born, before he could have had any choices, God arbitrarily made this decision. And as he quotes again here from the book of Genesis, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. This picture of God is picked up by many. And I want to be very careful here because I want to be respectful to those my brothers and sisters in the Christian faith who, who, who read the Bible differently than I do. Um, I went to seminary in Michigan, and there you basically have um, most of the Protestants in that part of the country are, are Calvinist and, or Lutheran. They're going to be either of the Reformed faith or the Lutheran faith. And so I had plenty of opportunity to, to speak with those who believe in the doctrine of predestination. But those who read this see a picture of God that's different than I see. They see a picture of God that says, I decide before a person is even born whether they're of the elect or of the damned, whether they're going to be saved or whether they're going to be lost, whether they're going to uh, suffer for eternity or enjoy heaven for eternity. That's the picture they see of God. We see here also Paul appeals to the story of of, uh, Pharaoh and his experience in Egypt. We see he appeals to the, peer, uh, the potter and the clay, the symbol of the potter and the clay. Has not the, po- the potter the power to decide what he's going to make of his vessel, whether it will be a vessel unto honor or unto dishonor? 
And so these, these passages have puzzled many people who see in the Bible, it seems, that God gives us freedom of choice, and yet they see in these passages, it seems, that God predestines or pre-elects or chooses who's going to be saved or who's going to be lost. So that's what we're talking about today. That's what we're going to be discussing as we study God's Word together. Are you ready to look at God's Word? Let's just bow our heads for an additional word of prayer before we begin. Father in heaven, today we recognize that our minds are finite and feeble. You are the infinite God. Your truth is beyond our comprehension. And yet you say that you would send your spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth. So today, Father, we just confess our need and we claim your promise that you would do as you have said. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we begin looking in depth at Romans chapter 9, I want us to discuss something that is, I believe, very related. It's a a subject which many people probably don't understand very clearly. I want us to look briefly at the subject of the church. The church. Will you take a few minutes with me, indulge me to talk about the church for just a few minutes? Um, There are many different words, there are many different meanings to the word church. When some people use the word church, they're talking about a physical structure. We are in a church, aren't we, today? A church building. That's one meaning of the word church. We might also speak about a congregation, a local congregation, which is a a part of a, a local community of faith. We are a part of a church here, the church in Dalton, the Seventh-day Adventist church in Dalton. We might also talk about a worldwide family or community, a denomination perhaps, when we talk about the word church. We also could be talking about, about um, just the, the idea of the church at large, all the denominations, all the Christian, the Christian church in a general sense. So there's many different meanings to the word church, and I want to just look at two perspectives of the word church for, with you today for a brief moment. I want us to think about the two perspectives of the, the word church. I want us to think of the church as being both a visible body as well as what? a spiritual body. Now, we're going to look at some verses. I want you to see this from God's Word today, but I want you to understand the church not only as a, 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 a spiritual body or not just as a visible body, but as both. God's church actually is both. And in one sense, during the, in, under, the, under the visible body, we have representation. We're going to look at more detail at that. Basically, God's visible people, God's visible body is the group of people God has given the message for that time to give to the world. Do you realize that in every age there's always been present truth? There's always been present truth. In Noah's day, there was a message to take to the world, wasn't there? In Jesus' day, in the Apostles' day, in the Reformers' day, in our day, there's a particular message, and we can trace that, particularly when we get to the, the books of Daniel and Revelation, talking about our day. We recognize there's a special prophetic message in the last days to go to the world. The visible church, then, the visible body, is that group of people to whom God has entrusted the message for the hour. And that is a, we're going to explore that in a, in a greater detail as we go on. The spiritual body, on the other hand, is much more intimate. The spiritual body is, a, is, is actually where we find salvation. Now, which is more important, truth or salvation? That may sound like a trick question, but I think it's salvation, okay? Um, I, I believe that salvation is the most important thing. Knowing Jesus, 
Knowing Jesus is the most important thing. We're going to explore this as we go on. But as in the, in the, in the spiritual body, the body of Christ, to become a part of the spiritual body of Christ, we, we enter salvation. Let's talk about that a little more. To enter the visible body, now this is what we can find in the New Testament, when people were convicted by the Holy Spirit, they were baptized, and in Acts chapter 2, it says that they were baptized, and the Lord added daily such as should be saved, and the church continued to grow. Now, that's the visible body, the Christian church in Acts chapter 2. They joined through baptism, right? Now, did that mean that every single person who became a part of the Christian church was necessarily converted and a part of the spiritual body of Christ? Don't we see some New Testament examples of those who are part of the visible body who we have a pretty good evidence were not part of the spiritual body? You think of Ananias and Sapphira, for example. Um, you, think of, you, think of, um, you think of the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where, where Paul says among the church there was sins being committed that weren't even named among the Gentiles. Um, so clearly, to be a part of the physical body, the visible body, does not necessarily mean that we're a part of the spiritual body. The spiritual body, we become a part of the spiritual body of Christ by the new birth of conversion, birth by the Spirit, born by water and born by the Spirit. Remember, that's what Jesus said, right? If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, two things are important. You'd be born again of water and of the Spirit. So we enter the, the visible body through birth by, by water and baptism. We enter the spiritual body of Christ through entrance by birth in the Spirit through conversion of heart. Now let's look at some of these verses here. I want us to just turn to them. So let's look at and see if we can find in God's Word what I'm talking about here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. We'll begin with that one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. We're going to come back to Romans 9 in just a few moments here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. Paul is addressing the church, and um, he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, verse 2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So who is Paul writing his letter to? The church, the church in Corinth, right? And it's in this book, just a few uh, chapters later, that we would find in chapter 5 and verse 1, it is commonly reported among you that there is fornication among you and such as is not so na much na as named among the Gentiles. So what I'm trying to say here is that we can become a part of the visible body of Christ without necessarily being a part of the spiritual body of Christ. Isn't that true? Um, let's look in Acts chapter 2 here. I referred to these verses, but I want you to see them for yourselves. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 41. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. When you're there, you can say amen. All right, let's go ahead and begin reading with verse 41. It says, And then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. How were they added? It was through baptism, right? Now, does baptism save us? No, we understand baptism is an external sign of what is happening in the heart, right? But it was through baptism that people joined the church. Verse 47, skip down. Um, they were praising God and saying, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. 
You see, God brought people into connection with His visible church. And I, I want to I I underscore this. I want to underscore this because there are some people who believe, well, you know, I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to be. A, Jesus saves me as my Savior. Yes, I understand that. I believe that Jesus can save us and does save us individually, as individuals. But the Bible record is very clear. The Bible record teaches that Jesus brings those whom He is saving into fellowship with His visible body, the body of Christ. When Paul was Saul, and he was on the road to Damascus, remember what happened? He was blinded with that light, and he was led by the hand into the city, and he sat for three days on the house in Straight Street, right? And um, there he was in Damascus, blind, thinking about what was going on. Now, could Jesus save him? Is Jesus, could Jesus save him from his sins without anybody else being involved? Is that possible? Absolutely, Jesus could. But you know what? Instead, Jesus went to a Christian believer who lived about, about half a mile away in the corner of the city. Well, at least if the houses that are there and they say are the same sites or the same sites. Um, and he said, Ananias, I want, Ananias was his name? I want you to go and to speak to Saul. Why? Because God always works to bring those souls whom he is saving into contact with his visible body. That's the principle we see over and over in the scriptures. Now, we can take that to an extreme, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's look in uh, Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, and let's see more about this visible body that God brings people into. Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. This is referring not to the New Testament church, but he, uh, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is, being, is referring back to a church in a previous era. And um, this is the King James I'm reading to with, uh, today, and it says, Acts 7, verse 38, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Now, what is the church in the wilderness, or what was the church in the wilderness that Moses was leading? It was the children of Israel, right? That was the church in the wilderness. Do you understand what we're seeing here in the New Testament? The word church is used to describe, sometimes, you know, it could be translated differently, congregation, um, but the, the word church here is describing God's church, God's people in previous eras when they were given a task of representing God. If we think about it, does this make sense? Were the children of Israel given the message of God for his time, for that time? Oh, yes. Were they supposed to just keep it to themselves? No, they were meant to bless all nations with the hope of the Messiah, with the truths of the sanctuary service. They were meant to be a light to, to all peoples. That was the intention for God's people because they were, they were God's chosen visible body and they were given the truth. Now, does that mean that every single Israelite was a converted and saved? I think this is pretty easy for us to understand, isn't it? You see the difference between a visible church and the spiritual church, the visible body and the spiritual body. Now, if we look at some verses that refer to the spiritual body, let's look at a couple of them here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. I like this passage um, because it speaks of the intimacy of the oneness which God wishes to have with His people. And um, we're going to... Um, Read that, verses 15 through 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know you not that he who is joined to an harlot is one body? For two says he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is what? One spirit. You see, when conversion by the Spirit of God, we become one with Jesus. We become a part of His spiritual body. Does this make sense? Now, we can't be a part of Jesus and still have our love relationship with the world. That's what Paul's trying to say. We, Jesus is not going to be married to someone who's playing around. It's either one way or the other. We're either joined with Christ or we're a part of the world. But we can't have it both ways. And so, he that is joined with the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. There's a oneness when we become a part of the spiritual body of Christ. We are converted and we become born again through the Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. You're going to understand why we're looking at this in just a few minutes when we look at Romans chapter 9. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. This is... Um, speaking, I believe, to the spiritual body of Christ. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are His. And let every name, one that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, how does that have any bearing on this? Simply put, we can see who's in the visible body. We, are, we, are, we cannot judge who is a part of the spiritual body, but God knows. God knows those who are His. You remember how Jesus said it in John chapter 10 when He said, other sheep have I that are not of this fold? Does Jesus know those other sheep? Absolutely. Yes, the Lord knows those that are His. The spiritual body of Christ, Jesus knows those who are part of His body. John chapter 17, real quickly, our last verse, and then we'll, um, we'll move on. John chapter 17, and verses 20 through 23, Jesus Himself speaking now and praying for His church. And I love this passage because it's not just praying for His disciples at the time. It's praying for His disciples who would believe on Him through their word. That's you and me. Jesus is praying for us. And this is his prayer, verse 20, John chapter 17. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Do you see what Jesus' desire for his people is? Oneness. He wants us to be part of his body. He wants us to be one spirit with Him, to abide in Him, as we read in John chapter 15. And so, I believe that if we look at just these two aspects of the church, the visible body and the spiritual body, it becomes very clear. God has a people that are His, both visibly as well as He knows spiritually. And the church of God on earth is meant to be a reflection of God's heart, God's purposes, and God's will on earth. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the church on, of God on earth always 
perfect at reflecting God's will and God's purposes on earth? Absolutely not. We see that, but that's God's purpose. That's God's purpose for them. In fact, God wants His church on earth to be such a reflection of His heart and His thought and His purposes that, that when we act on earth as His visible church, it is in concert with what He is doing in heaven. That's why He said, He said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, I will give you keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In Matthew 18, He says it again, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this does not mean that somehow we arbitrarily become the commanders of heaven that we become more important or powerful than God. No, that's not what he means at all. What he means is the church on earth is supposed to act in in concert with heaven so that when we act, we are acting in, 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 in concert with what he is doing. And we have that power and that authority to be acting upon the basis of his will revealed in his word. That's God's purpose, is for the church of God to be a reflection of God here on this earth. And so the mission of the church, the mission of the visible church is to be God's representatives. The mission of the visible church is to be caretakers of the truth, not so it can be hoarded and enjoyed only by us, the privileged few, but so that it can be shared and spread abroad throughout all the world. A divine obligation rests upon the visible body of Christ. We are custodians, we are stewards, we're considered heirs, we're entrusted. All of these words bring responsibility to share with others. I believe this is what Paul was referring to when he, he spoke in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of what? The truth. You see, the church is meant to be the pillar and ground of the truth. God's church, God's visible body, is given a specific mission, a specific message, and that is to take and guard and to present before the world the truth that is especially important at this time. God's visible church, His representatives, have always been the safeguards of His truth. Now, that is not to say that the church in any age has given a completely perfect reflection of the knowledge or of the truth or the will of God. But it is to say that God's representative people have been given the closest or most comprehensive understanding and stand in a singular way responsible for its preservation and sharing. Do you understand what we're talking about today? There's a priv- it's a privilege to be given the, the, the responsibility of being a part of God's visible body. It's a heavy responsibility, high responsibility. It doesn't mean that we have all the truth. It doesn't mean in any age, God's church, God vis- God's visible body has never had exhausted all the truth, all the understanding, has been right about everything. That's not what it means. But God's visible body has the closest understanding, the most exhaustive understanding, the clearest teaching of God's truth at that age. That is what I'm seeing as I study church history. Let me try to illustrate it graphically, if you please. If we were to illustrate this graphically, this concept of the church, we've already looked at these verses, we could talk about the visible body of Christ to whom the truth has been entrusted, by whom people uh, join by baptism, 
by uh, being a part of a visible group that is given the message for that hour to take to the world. We would recognize that not everyone who is a part of the visible body is also a part of the spiritual body. Now, this is sort of sad, isn't it? Do you think it's God's will for everyone who's a part of His visible body to also be a part of His spiritual body? Is that what God wants? Of course. He wants oneness with His people. But the reality is, the reality, unfortunately, is that not everyone who's a part of the visible body who has been given the work to take the message to the world, not everyone is also a part of the spiritual body. Now, this is a, this is a beautiful truth, on the other hand, to recognize that not everyone who's a part of the spiritual body is, also, is, is a part of the visible body. In fact, I would dare say that in almost any age you were to look at, if you were to examine the population of the world in any age, I would dare say it's quite possible that in any time of his earth's history, there have been more people who are true to Jesus in heart and in spirit and a part of his spiritual body who are outside of the visible body than there are those who are inside the visible body. Now, where do we want to be? I don't know about you, but I want to be here in the spiritual body and also in the visible body. Okay, this is, may seem simplistic. I'm not trying to be too elementary here for you, but I'm trying to help us lay some groundwork for understanding the concept of the church, the visible church, God's representative people. I want to be a part of the spiritual body and also a part of the visible body. That's where I want to be. The spiritual body we see is a... Is a um, Being a part of the spiritual body brings the responsibilities and the privileges of salvation. Being a part of the visible body brings the responsibility and the privileges of representation. And this is what I believe the Israelites did not understand. You see, the Israelites said, we're a part of the visible body. We're a part of the visible body. We're the church. Therefore, we are also automatically a part of the spiritual body. Right? Isn't that what they thought? Because we, have, we, we, we're circumcised, we go to church on the Sabbath day, we, we go to the temple, we have the temple. In fact, the Old Testament prophets had to sometimes chastise the people because they were saying, well, we have the temple. And the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they're ours, it's ours. Listen, the temple of the Lord doesn't save you. Having it in your midst doesn't save you. Being a part of the visible body doesn't save you. You may be a good Jew, but you need to be a spiritual Jew as well, a part of the spiritual body. Do you understand that it's been a temptation for God's visible people in all times to trust in the fact that they have been given the responsibility of the truth, the law, the prophets, the temple? It's ours. It's been a temptation for God's people in the visible body in all ages to forget that that does not bring salvation. It simply brings a responsibility of representation. Only being a part of the spiritual body of Christ can bring salvation. You know, we have people go to the opposite extreme. And we say, they say, well, I don't need to be a part of a visible body. I think it's important for us to understand what God is trying to say in the Word not go to either of the extremes, trusting in the visible body or trusting exclusively in the spiritual body, because God always works to bring those two together. That's His purpose. That's His plan. 
And so the, the Israelites trusted in the temple. They said, we are the Jews. We are the children of Abraham. We are the heirs of the promises. And they crucified the promise. They were the visible body. But they rejected the spiritual body in person and nailed him to a tree. And you know, God, I want you to understand, friends, for those of you who are ready to just say, I don't need to be a part of the visible body, I just need to be a part of the spiritual body, there are too many hypocrites in the church, I want you to understand that God is very long-suffering with His people. Think of it. The children of Israel. And Jesus, even foreseeing what would happen, He stands on that mountain on pauses the triumphal entry and tears roll down his faces and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my arms as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You see, Israel was God's people. Visible body, representatives, entrusted stewards. They rejected Jesus and yet... God did not reject them. He gave them yet another three and a half years. Study the history. After the Jews crucified Jesus, God still gave them opportunity. I will make you my instruments to take the message of the Messiah to the world. Three and a half years went by. They continued to persecute his followers until the stoning of Stephen in 34 AD. And the Bible reads after that experience in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, it says... A persecution took place in Jerusalem, verses 1 through 4, and the disciples were scattered everywhere preaching the world. Word, after the 70 weeks had been fulfilled for, for the Jewish nation, after they had failed to make an end of their rebellion and of their sins and their transgressions, and they were, they were still in rebellion against God, not only crucifying the Messiah, but now killing His followers. The Jews were rejected as a people. Now I want you to understand, not as individuals, they were rejected as a people. So that the scripture says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Listen to what Paul is trying to say here. There was a time when in order to be a part of the body of Christ, the visible body, you needed to become a Jew. You needed to become circumcised. And even then, they only let you into the outer court of the temple, not into the inner sanctum of the holy places. But you could, you, could, you could become a part of God's people by joining the Jewish faith. Paul is saying here, that's no longer necessary. That's not necessary. We have a whole book of Galatians speaking about the, the whole rite of circumcision and the, the need to obey the ceremonial law in order to become a Jew in order to be saved. And Paul is saying, listen, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor free, female, neither bond nor free. You're all one. And who are now the Abraham seed? If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul here is teaching the fact that God has made a paradigm shift. Catch this, what's going on. God has made a paradigm shift. He has chosen a new group of people as his representatives. Now, if we just look at this one verse, we could look at a number of other passages in Paul's writings. He makes this very, very clear. The Jews rejected Jesus. They rejected His message. And now, and now they are no longer His chosen people. 
they are no longer his visible body. Who's the visible body now? The Christian church. The Christian church is now the vehicle, the visible body through whom, which, through whom, God, is entrust, to whom God has entrusted the truth and through whom he wants that truth to be taken to the world. The Christian church. Now, can you imagine if you're a Jew having spent your whole life thinking we're God's people. Can you imagine the difficulty in following this paradigm shift that God has, has been about? Do you understand? And even those who became Christians, they had a hard time following it. He said, oh no, you, yeah, we're, 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 we're Christians. We believe in Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah, but we're still Jews. And you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. They had a hard time. It was difficult. It was hard for them to understand how the promises could be transferred like that. I mean, this was to Abraham and his descendants. What do you mean those who are Christ's are Abraham's? Even a Gentile? Not of the seed of, of Abraham? Is that possible? And so, God is doing something that is remarkable. And, and Paul, in Romans chapter 9, is trying to explain what God is doing. And that's what we're going to discover. But let's just review here quickly how God has always had a movement of truth on the earth that He has been patient with. We have Adam and Eve in the garden. That was the first church, wasn't it? His visible body. Of course, we recognize that they did not stay a part of the spiritual body. They, they chose to rebel. And God chose then Abraham a system of patriarchs to be his visible representatives on earth. At this point, it was just a, sort of like a family line. The eldest of every, son, of every family would be the firstborn and have the spiritual responsibility of safeguarding the truth and passing it down to a future generation. Um, after Abraham and the patriarchs, we have a whole nation, the nation of Israel. We talked a little bit about how Israel was that visible body of Christ that was responsible for safeguarding and sharing the truth. But then at the stoning of Stephen, we, I, we recognize this is the time when fulfilling those 70 years uh, predicted in, in Daniel chapter 9, when the gospel now goes to the Gentiles, and the visible body is no longer the Jewish nation. Now it is the Christian church. The Christian church grew rapidly, but you know what happened. We studied about it a few weeks ago. Paul predicted it. Peter predicted it. After our departure, grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, right? There would be a falling away. Men would arise among yourselves teaching perverse things. These are all prophecies that were spoken of in the New Testament Scriptures. And the church would become, although they were God's visible body, the church would become by the Middle Ages a long ways from where God wanted it to be. A long, long ways from where God's wanted it to be. In fact, some people, have, it's so, some people say it's so far from where God wanted it to be, they have a hard time recognizing that it was still God's visible church. But if you study the book of Revelation, we won't go into that in detail now, if you study the book of Revelation, the interesting thing about the seven churches, the seven churches are describing the visible church. And it speaks, in symbolic language, of course, it speaks about this exact situation being allowed, being tolerated in the church, that woman Jezebel. It speaks about the great apostasy. 
And it makes sense because where is, where is the, bod, the spiritual body of Christ during this time? According to Revelation chapter 12, it's in hiding, right? In the wilderness. And so it's, an, it's not a visible body. The visible body is in apostasy. And the time would come when God would have a movement out of the medieval church. I believe it. I believe this is what God was doing. I believe God, God, God raised up a reformation. Why? Because, oh, of course, he could have. The truth preached by Martin Luther and the Reformers could have converted the existing church and it could have remained as God's representative on earth, right? Couldn't that have happened? Wouldn't God have preferred that to happen at every stage along the way? He would have preferred it with the Jews. He would have preferred it with the church in the Middle Ages. But the time came when the church rejected the message of the gospel of righteousness by faith that Luther and Calvin and others brought. And God's movement was a new movement. God's visible representatives on earth was the Reformation, a new body of people. And that would go fine until people began holding to their creeds so much that they didn't hold to the Bible anymore. Their sola scriptura claim fell apart when a couple hundred years later they were presented with the truth about the second coming, with the truth about other numerous truths that were being uncovered in the Scriptures. And they said, no, our pioneers, our reformers, our fathers, they didn't believe these things, so we're not going to believe them either. And I believe God raised up what I believe is the last movement. And I want you to be very clear here. I'm not talking about a denomination specifically here. In history, what we see is movements. God brings up movements entrusted with His truth, entrusted with His message in the last days. And I believe the great Second Advent movement was and is God's last movement on this earth. We don't have time to explore all those reasons. Now, is God patient with us? Amen. He's patient with us. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful He was patient with ancient Israel. But if we look in Romans chapter 9 now, get your Bibles, and I think we've laid a good foundation for what Paul is trying to say in Romans chapter 9. So let's look and, and read a few verses here. We're not going to be able to look at all the verses in detail, but I want us to at least see enough here that you have a good grasp of what Romans 9 is trying to say. And uh, we're going to look here and... and um, we might still peek, take a peek at some other passages, but in Romans chapter 9, Paul begins saying, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What's Paul trying to say? Paul's burden for the salvation of his fellow countrymen was so great. He says, I wish, like Moses, I could pray, God, blot me out of the book of life if only they can be saved. That's what he's saying here. I'm so concerned. My burden, my heaviness, my sorrow is so oppressive that I wish I could be accursed from Christ in order that they might be saved. Now, this is an ironic statement to make. And he goes on to say why it's ironic in verse 4. Who are Israelites? To whom pertains the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Paul is saying, look, these my fellow countrymen have every advantage in order to be saved. They were God's people. 
I mean, there's no, you can't really define in better, more exhaustive terms what it means to be the visible body of Christ than what Paul just said. They they were the ones that were adopted. They were the ones that received the covenants. Mind you, they forgot that the covenants was a two-way agreement, but nonetheless. They, They were the ones that had the services of the sanctuary. They were the ones, you just go down the list, the Israel had been given all of these blessings as the visible body of Christ. And yet, ironically, with all of these blessings, Paul finds himself wishing he could be cursed from Christ so that they could be saved. Now, he's going to have to explain this, because remember, there's Jews reading it. And there's Jews reading this thing, what are you talking about? If we have the promises and we are the adoption and we have, we don't, we are saved. Do you understand how the Jews had a hard time separating representation and salvation? You should understand it because we have the same problem today. (laughs) Honestly, if we're we're honest, we have the same problem today. The Jews had a hard time separating representation and salvation. And so Paul's going to explain it. Paul's going to break it down. (laughs) You've got to understand this. And so he explains, not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He's going to begin to explain this. How can I say that even though they had all those blessings and all those gifts and all those promises, how can I say that they're not saved automatically? Well, look what he says. Verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Oh, what's Paul doing? Paul is pointing out the fact that God Evidently, just because he is God, specifically chose one of Abraham's sons to be the ancestor of the Messiah. Do you think about that, Jews? Have you ever thought about the fact that God chose arbitrarily, just because he's God, he chose Isaac? Have you ever thought about that? Well, let's think about some other things. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for a seed. For this is the word of promise, that this time shall I come, and Sarah shall have a son, and so forth. And now he talks about Rebekah. And he says, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, having done neither good or evil, in other words, nothing that, that Jacob or Esau have done has figured into God's plan here, God, but he says, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Okay? Elder shall serve the younger. God chose. Why? How did he do that? Because he's God. He gets to choose. He's God. And then it goes on and it says, well, what, uh, is it verse 13? As it is written, Jacob have I loved but Esau have I hated. Now, this is something that some people have a hard time with. And before, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're running short of time. But basically, this is not God hating in a sense, in a general sense of the word, like we would say in a positive sense. And, and for that, you can simply look in the Old Testament. The word hate is used in a way that we would not use it today. For example, between Jacob and his two wives. You remember he loved one of his li- li- wives, Rachel? You know what the Bible says about Leah? He hated her. 
Now, we read that in modern English and we say, wow, that's a pretty dysfunctional family. It was dysfunctional. Okay, polygamy is always dysfunctional. But the fact is this is a term that is used in a different way than we would use it today. Now, I'll give you evidence, more evidence. In uh, Luke chapter 14, 26 and in John chapter 12, verse 25. If you're taking notes, you can write those down. Luke 14, 26 and John 12, 25. Jesus says in two different places, basically, unless you hate your father or mother more than... Unless you hate your father and mother, you're not worthy of me. Now, is he talking about hatred in the positive sense of the word, like we would define it? That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, w- hatred simply in this sense means not preferring above the other. Does that make sense? This is what Paul, the, uh, God is doing when he chooses Jacob. Esau has a, a Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It's not that he hated him like someone's mad and seething and, you know, uh, he's not a violation, violator of the commandments to hate our brother. No. He's, he's, he's simply choosing Jacob over Esau. And he, God is, has the right to choose because he is God. If we continue on here, Paul says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. What argument is Paul trying to make to the Jews reading this article, or this, this letter? He's trying to argue God has the right to choose. But what I'm going to argue today is that Paul's main subject is not about salvation. Paul's main argument is about representation. Let's hold on, hold on. We're going to skip on down. Verse 17, for the Scripture says of Pharaoh... Unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, I have called thee up, uh, I've raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on the, whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now, there are different ways for us to understand this. We could have a whole sermon just on this passage. I'm just going to leave it with this. God raised Pharaoh to the throne at that point in history for the purpose of his name being honored and glorified. That's clear in this passage. Pharaoh had a choice as to how God's name was honored and glorified. The easy way or the hard way. In fact, if you look in the book of Exodus, two times the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And two times the Bible says that God hardened his heart. Now, which is it? It's both. Because God brought him to this point in history. He raised him to power. He gave them the opportunities. Pharaoh made the decisions. Pharaoh decided how it was going to happen, but God was sure it was going to happen. You know, this is something for us to consider. No matter whether we accept the truth or not, the truth is going to triumph. No matter whether we accept God as our Savior or not, His name is going to be honored and glorified. We have a choice as to how that will happen in and through our lives. Skip on down. Verse 21, Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show His wrath and to, and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might make known the, vessel, the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He has before prepared unto glory? Even us, whom He has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And here we get to what Paul is trying to say. All of this simply to say this. Verse 25, 
As he said also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were what? Not my people. And her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. Paul's point here is that God has the right to choose, because he's God. He has the right to choose who will be his representatives on earth. He has the right to choose to bring a new movement or to work with the old. He has a right to do that because he's God. Now, does that mean that Jews can no longer be saved? Are we talking about salvation here at all? No, he starts the chapter saying, I wish that they would be saved. He starts the next chapter saying, my heart's desire, I, I, I want them to be saved. We're not talking about salvation here at all. We're talking about representation. The Jews have been bypassed. They have been left behind because of their choices. They have been left behind. No longer are they the movement through whom God is working. No longer are they the people of God, the visible body of Christ. Now he will work through a new body, a new people, and he will work to save the world and even the Jews through that new body and that new people. And he goes on. He makes it very clear. Isaiah also says, verse 27, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved, for he shall cut short his work. I'm sorry, for he shall finish the work, he shall cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Skip down now with me to verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of what? Of faith. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness. They had the law, right? They had the promises, the covenants, and the services, and everything else. Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Verse 32. Because they sought it not by faith, as it were by the works of the law, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Do you understand what Paul is trying to say here? He's trying to say, look, God has a right to choose his representatives. He gives these examples of Esau and Jacob, of, of Pharaoh and of the potter and of the clay. But in the end, what he comes down and he says, look, God has chosen the Gentiles now. Those who are Christ or Abraham's seed, they are now his representative visible body on earth. And how can we understand that? Because God has had a history of choosing arbitrarily sometimes at times. God chooses because He's God. Now, if you were to read, let's just back up here. I think, I hope this is pretty clear what Paul's trying to say in Romans chapter 9. But if you were to read this the other way, if you were to read this as God saying, God chooses some to be saved and some to be damned, if this issue was salvation being discussed, you would have problems when you got here to the last couple verses. Because if God was saying in Romans 9, I have the right to choose who's going to be saved, who's going to be lost, the last verses would read something like this. Even so, Israel has failed to attain to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they were not the elect. Do you see the difference? That's not what the last part of the chapter says. The last part of the chapter says because they attempted, they attempted righteousness by work. They attempted to, to attain the standard of righteousness through their own efforts. It's their choice, right? They chose and they failed. It's not God 
chose and damned them. They chose to attempt to, to attain the standard of righteousness by works. In the Bible, God is often represented as doing that which He does not prevent. But what I want us to see here is that God has made very clear that His people Israel were rejected not because of some preordained election, but because they chose to attempt to attain righteousness by the works of the law instead of righteousness by faith. Now, friends, this is a warning for us. It should be a warning for us. In fact, Paul's going to bring this concept back in Romans chapter 11 when he's going, to, he's going to say, look, if God didn't spare the natural branches but cut them off, you be careful. Don't boast. You wild branches grafted in. If God spared, didn't spare the natural branches but cut them off, He can cut us, us off too. There's a warning here that we should not go about to establish our own righteousness by works, but accept the righteousness that only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus. Paul has spent eight chapters discussing salvation already in Romans. The issue in Romans 9 is not primarily salvation, but representation. That's the argument that I that I would make this morning. Paul is trying to help them understand the change that has taken place. God has a right to unilaterally choose His representatives. Just as He chose Moses to, go, Moses to go up into the mount and see Him face to face, not me. That doesn't make God unjust. Just as He chose Jacob before He was born to be the ancestor of the Messiah, not Esau. That doesn't make Him unjust. He chose Israel as a chosen nation to be His special people, but the time came when He rejected them and chose another, even a people from all languages and ethnicities and nations, the Gentiles. But that doesn't make him unjust either because God is God. God can choose a donkey to talk for him if he needs to. God says, I will choose the rocks to speak for me if you won't speak for me. God is God. And when it comes to representation, we don't have the right to say, who, who chose? Why, why did this happen? He's God. He has the right. And he will reserve that right even to have stones cry out if we are silent. The Jews stumbled, we see in those last few verses, not because they were not the elect, but because they sought righteousness by works. In fact, if you look here in that last verse, we didn't read it yet, but in that last verse, verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. I love this passage, because here it shows. It shows that Jesus, Jesus is our Savior. Is that a good thing? Amen. But here, He's portrayed not just as our Savior, He's also portrayed as a stumbling stone. Why? Because if you're trying to earn salvation in a way that you can have anything to boast about, Jesus is a stumbling stone in your way. And you're going to fall and trip and fail every time. Jesus is a stumbling stone to those who would work out their own salvation on their own merits, their own works. But whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. Did you see what it said? Did it really say that? Do you see that word, whosoever? That doesn't sound to me like some are chosen to be saved and some are chosen to be lost. Whoever believes on Him shall not be ashamed. 
Notice with me a couple of passages. We'll just look at them real quickly. God never intended any other purpose than salvation for the members of the family, the human family. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, For God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are these precious promises or what? Oh, they tell me of a God who loves us. They tell me of a God who wants us to be saved. They tell me of a God who has already chosen us for salvation and wants us to accept that gift of salvation. Revelation 22 and verse 17. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. I was, I was getting my windshield replaced one time. It was in the town of Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I, I called the phone book and got a number of different prices for, for replacing my windshield, and the best price was this one company. And so I went to the address and found it as like a home business, you know. It was, uh, it was in a residential neighborhood, and the guy had... His, my windshield ordered, and, and I was already, I'd already paid for it and whatever. So, so I, I come in there, and I, he, he makes pretty quick work. He comes out, young guy, and he's, he's talking to me, and he's witnessing to me. He's a Christian. He was talking to me, and what he was really wanting me to see was that God chooses some people to be saved and some people to be lost, the doctrine of predestination. And I listened, and I, I tried to, you know, I tried, whenever he came with a Bible verse, I tried to sort of take the context and show him what, what Paul particularly was trying to say there. And I, I, had, him, I had him, you know, talk about some other, uh, other passages. And, and, um, and he said, well, you know, he said, I believe that we do have to choose. Yes, we do have to choose to be saved. But it doesn't matter because, I mean, we're either going to be saved or lost. And I said, what do you mean choose then? Is that a choice? I gave him this illustration. I said, you know, friend, if... if, if if I jump out of an airplane without a parachute and choose to fall, what, what, what really meaning does my choice have? You understand what I'm saying? Do I have any choice? No. No, I believe that God has given us choice. And I do believe that God is powerful. But there's nothing more impressive than that absolute power than absolute power that allows freedom. You see, I believe that when man fell at the beginning, it was because he had freedom of choice. Not because God pre-elected him to fall. God isn't responsible for the sin we have, we suffer in. God, God wanted that freedom because only in freedom is there love. Only in freedom is there relationship. And so, when God... When man fell, he lost that freedom because now there was nothing he could do except be lost. Am I telling the truth? He had no choice any longer but to be lost for eternity. Until God stretched out his arms on Calvary's tree. And when he said, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit. When, when Jesus gave up the ghost and when he died... 
I want you to know what Jesus had just done was Jesus just purchased freedom once again for the human race. That's how committed Jesus is to freedom. God is to freedom. Heaven is to freedom. God wants us to have the ability to choose. And He is not willing to force us to be saved anymore. He would be forcing us to be lost. He wants to give us freedom to choose heaven or hell, one or the other. Oh, this man became more and more agitated as I talked to him and, and shared him all these things. And finally, finally, he was really getting upset, and I was worried about my windshield. And, um, and, and as he's, he's getting more and more agitated and more and more upset, and, and I said, Brother, why are you so worried about me agreeing with you? If you're right, then I'm either elect or lost, and my agreeing with you won't change that, will it? I mean, really. It doesn't matter. And he says, I just can't understand. I can't understand how you can't see it. It's so clear in the Bible. He said, even my, even my three-year-old, we were having worship and reading in Ephesians the other night. And my three-year-old, and she was, she was running around you know, the yard there, a little cute little girl. My three-year-old, we were reading in Ephesians, and she said, isn't that neat, Daddy, how God chooses some to be saved? some to be lost. Even my three-year-old can see it, and you can't see it. And then he paused. And in a reflective moment, he said, of course, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she's among the elect or the damned. And I just stood there stunned that a father could see a God to be a loving God who chooses some to be saved and some to be lost and might even have chosen his own precious, cute, beautiful little daughter to be eternally damned. I'm so thankful, friends. That's not what the Scriptures teach. Whosoever believeth on Him shall have everlasting life. I don't know about you, but I want that whosoever to be talking about me. Is that your desire today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we've struggled with some of the passages of Paul's writings that may be more obscure or difficult, but we've seen your amazing love, your amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for being willing so patiently to work with your visible body. Throughout history, we can see how your people have tested and tried you over and over, and you love them still. Lord, I thank you in an even greater way, even more, for inviting all of us to be a part of your spiritual body. That we, though we are nothing but dust in this solar system, in this universe, though we are nothing, you invite us to be one with the God of the whole universe. Oh, Lord, thank you for saying whosoever. Thank you for inviting all to come unto you. 
Thank you for not being willing that, willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank you for being a God who loves us enough to die so that we would have the freedom to reject you or to accept you as you want us to. Oh, Lord, help us to love you more. Help us as we've looked at Romans 9 to have a greater awe of your plan for our lives, your purpose for us this week, today, to be your representatives, your people, share your truth. I pray that everyone here, under the sound of my voice, might leave this house of worship knowing they are one spirit with Jesus because he's invited them. He's died for them. And right now, nothing but their own choice can prevent that from happening. Lord, we give you our hearts, we give you our minds, we give you our wills. We pray that you would bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.